Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, let's open up to Exodus chapter 3. In corporate worship this morning, we looked into the future at the rapture. Of course, in Omega, we're studying Exodus, so we're going to go back in time to look at redemption. So Exodus chapter 3 is where we'll begin and be throughout our time together this morning. Our title for the message is Yahweh, Moses, and a proleptic look at redemption from Egypt. And you'll see that unfold in our time together. Well, over the last few years, a website entitled Fatherly has gained serious traction, fatherly.com. They promote a tool called the Baby Name Uniqueness Analyzer. It calculates how likely someone with a given name is to come across another person with the same name based on data from the Social Security Administration in 2021. For example, this tool reveals that in 2021, if you were born with the name Noah, you would have contributed to its rise as the second most popular baby boy name in 2021. And interestingly, the 691st most popular baby girl name in the same year. That means one out of every 99 baby boys born in the United States in 2021 was named Noah. As it relates to a baby girl's name, Emma, the second most popular baby girl name in 2021, 15,433 girls born that year have the name Emma. That means at school, if your name is Emma, you have an 87% chance probability of meeting another Emma. And on the opposite end of the spectrum here with names, for the slightly more unique names, and this is where it gets sort of fun, a baby boy named Wolf would be a hard baby to find. In fact, in 2021, only 105 babies were named Wolf. That's, I'm not, I'm not, that is not a joke. So if your name was Wolf, you would have a 1.3% probability of going to school with another boy named Wolf. So that's slim pickings if you have that name. Well, in the passage that we'll study together this morning, we come across a unique name. In fact, if you were to use the uniqueness analyzer to search this name, you would only find it used by one, and that is of the one true God of the Bible. It is in this great passage that we come to name, we come to know rather, the name of our God. His name is Yahweh. Well, over the last three weeks, we have begun our study of the book of Exodus. And it's crucial to understand that we have now left the introductory portions of Exodus. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with a conjunction and a noun. Now, I've told you this throughout our study of Genesis, that in the Hebrew language, a majority of Hebrew sentences begin with verbs. So here in 3.1, it begins with a conjunction and a noun, which signals a major and striking continuation, but also a transition in the narrative. In chapters 1 and 2, as we've talked about the last two weeks, over 80 years passed 
And it was during that time where Moses, the narrator, selected pertinent details that were necessary for us as readers to know in order to be able to read the book of Exodus successfully. Another common feature of Hebrew narrative, and as you read the Old Testament on your own in your quiet time, you'll pick up on this, is that introductory sections happen to be very brief and they cover a lot of time and they give us certain facts that we need to know to set us up for the rest of the story. And that's exactly what Exodus 1 and 2 have done for us. The key facts that we need to take with us as we continue in Exodus 3 are the fact that Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. We know that Pharaoh, or the king of Egypt, has arisen and he no longer knows Joseph, but he is hostile to God's people. And because of this, God's people have now been enslaved for over 400 years. But in God's providence, During this time, the nation grew, the nation was fruitful, and the nation multiplied up to at least two million people, we come to find out from the biblical text. And because of this rise in bodies, Pharaoh becomes greatly concerned that he will be taken over, he will lose his power, he will lose his reign, so he orders two edicts or two decrees to kill Hebrew infant males. And then the narrative shifts in Exodus 2 when we are introduced to a man by the name of Moses. And you know that he escapes death and is raised in Egyptian royalty and culture. But 40 years after his birth, we see that he kills a man and then he flees to Midian. He has a drastic character change. He gets married and he has kids. And then the last little fact that we need to see in Exodus 2 is that the people of God, because of the slavery that they had faced now for centuries, they began crying out to God to be freed. They cry out to God for help. And of course, God hears the prayers of his people. So at this point in the narrative, we assume that Moses, this child that has escaped death, is going to be someone special because half of the introductory portion of the book is dedicated to him, key insights into his life. And that is why to some degree, and I know this is difficult for all of us, in our study of Exodus, we should try and read the narrative as if it is our first time to read the narrative. Because in reality, in Exodus 1 and 2, Moses hasn't been called yet. We don't really know that he's going to be the one to lead the people. Now, of course, we know that because we understand Exodus, we know the unfolding story of Scripture, but just in terms of reading it for your first time, we haven't been privy to that information yet. So we need to try and approach the rest of Exodus as if it is our first time to read it, with fresh eyes. But on the other hand, I also want us to read the Exodus narrative with the entire story in view. Because we know the entire story, we're able to pull in certain passages and texts from Exodus to create sort of a biblical theology of Exodus, to see the holistic view, the overarching themes and points. You've got to find that balance. But there are some serious parallels that we see happen to Moses in this chapter 
and the introductory portions of Exodus that preview what's ultimately going to happen to the nation of Israel. So if you look at Exodus holistically, what happens to Moses at the beginning of Exodus ultimately happens to the entire nation as we keep going in the story. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, first off, three months after Moses is born, he is placed in an ark and sent down the Nile River. Exodus 2.5 tells us that he was among the reeds. Now, track with me here. This Hebrew word reeds is the same word used to describe the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds later on in Exodus 14. This shows both Moses' deliverance in the reeds or through water, but then eventually the nation of Israel's deliverance through the water. Secondly, we're told Moses spends 40 years in the, in the wilderness, which God, of course, used for his good. Later on in Exodus, we will see that the Israelites, after the Red Sea, after they passed through the water, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And third, and we'll see this in our passage today, and this is the connecting point, Moses has a divine encounter with God at the burning bush, and he's called to be a leader of a nation. Later in Exodus, the Israelites have a divine encounter with God at Sinai and are called to be his people. So if you put everything together here, Moses is delivered through the waters, he spends time in the wilderness, and then he has an encounter with God. That's previewing the rest of the book. The same will be true for the nation. They will be delivered through the Red Sea, they will traverse in the wilderness, and they will have an encounter with God at Mount Sinai. So let's find that balance of reading Exodus with fresh eyes, but at the same time, being able to grasp the whole story and what's trying to be conveyed as the plot moves along. So this morning, as we consider together this great chapter, Exodus chapter 3, we can easily divide it into two sections. We can divide this into two sections, God's appearance to Moses and God's conversation with Moses. We'll get into that here in just a minute. But we must also include the text beginning in chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, which could be titled God's Empowerment of Moses. So let me put it this way. Exodus 3, 1 through 4, 16 records a single interaction, a single conversation between God and Moses. Now, that's amazing. Think about it here in Exodus 1 through 3. Chapters 1 and 2, over 80 years it covers. Here in Exodus 3, going through chapter 4, 16, one single conversation. (laughs) So, again, Hebrew narrative does this at the high points or important parts of the narrative. It slows down to almost a dead stop. So this weekend and next, we're going to spend time looking at one single conversation between God and Moses, which is ultimately a preview of what will come for the entire nation. So what is this section or this theme? What, what, what is Exodus 3 about? You could summarize it this way. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. He reveals his own name and his character and declares the end from the beginning, that is, proleptically He describes and anticipates the Hebrews' redemption from Egypt as if it had already happened. 
Now that's kind of a mouthful, but I want us to see, see this here. We've got the burning bush. We have a conversation between God and Moses. And in that conversation, proletically, God describes events of the future as if they have already happened. So God is telling us the whole story of Exodus right here. <laughs> He's telling Moses personally through the burning bush. It's really an amazing preview. So let's look at these two sections. And then next week, I believe Arnold, he'll take us through chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So we'll look at the first two sections today. Uh, the first section is God's appearance to Moses. God's appearance to Moses. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why? The bush is not burned up. Now this goes without saying, but the episode or the event of the burning bush is one of the most well-known events in all of Scripture. In fact, it was R.C. Sproul who said that the burning bush is a life-changing event for Moses and a watershed event for all of human history. Again, this is why the Hebrew narrative slows down to a snail's pace. It's because of the importance of this scene, of this event. Now the text picks up with Moses shepherding and, pa and uh, pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. And he eventually comes to Mount Oreb. Notice here at the end of verse 1, it's called the mountain of God. If, if you underline expressions or titles or things in your Bible, this would be a great one to underline. Moses comes to the mountain of God. Now, at this point, Moses has traveled a great distance from Midian, possibly several weeks of travel, but we're clued into the fact that he comes to the mountain of God. Now, why is this important? It's because the mountain being described here is also named in Exodus Mount Sinai. Most likely, Horeb describes the mountain range or the general location, and Sinai describes the specific mountain. So this isn't a contradiction here. But Moses comes to Sinai. This is ultimately where he comes. Now, he would be taking his flock to this mountain region because of the high grassy slopes that would have been around this mountain range. But it's key to note that where Moses first encounters God is at Mount Sinai because this is where the nation of Israel will have their first dramatic encounter with God, Exodus 19 and 20. Again, this is a preview of what will come. So Moses is no longer identifying with his Egyptian upbringing and culture, and he's embraced the occupation of a shepherd which in the sight of Egyptians would have been very low in terms of economics and culture. The fact that he was tending the flock suggests that he has no plans whatsoever to return to Egypt. 
none. He's also no longer a single man or an outlaw of some sorts, but he's now a family man. And according to Exodus 2.21, he's a content man, a man that desires to engage in shepherding life. The last thing on his mind is that he's going to traverse back to Egypt. But as we'll see in a moment's time, that would radically change. Look at verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Now, this is the first time in Exodus that we come across supernatural, miraculous activity. Everything else in chapters 1 and 2 has been God working sovereignly or God working providentially. But at this moment in time, God intervenes. He steps into nature. He He halts what would be the normal course of action for earthly realities. And he appears as fire in a burning bush. That's verse 2. Notice how we're being told this information, by the way. This is all a narrator comment. So Moses is telling us that the messenger of God, God himself, is the one who appears in a burning bush. Put yourself in Moses' shoes here. When Moses comes around the corner and sees this burning bush, he has no idea at that moment that this burning bush is actually God himself, God manifesting himself. I mean, we do, right? Because it just, it just told us that in verse two. <laughs> Moses doesn't, he doesn't know this yet. So, so he would have been a little puzzled. So we're one step ahead of Moses at this point because he, who, he does not know who is in the burning bush. Now the question and the controversy always arises at this point, who is the angel of the Lord? It's a worthy study for you to embark on this week. Various proposals have been thrown out as possibilities for who this angel or messenger of the Lord is. Uh, But I think this is helpful. It would be better to understand the Hebrew word for angel as a messenger or a representative. As a messenger or representative. Uh, The Greek translation of the Old Testament, they often translate this Hebrew word angel. And so sort of keeping with tradition, most English translations will translate this Hebrew word as angel. uh, But it can be used for an angel and often is. But in this context, it's better understood as a messenger or, or, or a representative. Here, the burning bush, it isn't an angel. It is not an angel. But rather, it's appearance of God. But that brings up another theological controversy. Is it an appearance of God the Father or is it an appearance of God the Son? Is it a theophany, an appearance of God, or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ? That's what you're supposed to research this week. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, not now, but this week, you'll find that this appearance of God here is most likely Christ. And there's other reasons and arguments to put forth for that. But we'll see that as we go along with the pillar of fire that leads the Israelites during the night and the pillar of cloud that leads during the day and even the cloud and the fire that reside over the tabernacle. Most would land on the fact that that's most likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But nevertheless, Moses comes around the corner and he sees a bush on fire. 
God is appearing in a burning bush or a shrub as a flame of fire. Now, it's impossible to discern what type of bush this is or was, but it certainly would have been native to that region, so there's nothing odd about that. It was probably a few feet in diameter. And these bushes would have often been used by shepherds or travelers to to start fires on cold nights in the wilderness. But this clearly isn't what's happening. No other human was around while the bush was on fire. In addition, verse 3, and this is important, verse 3 tells us that although the bush was on fire, it was not being burned up or consumed. That's a key detail. We can't miss that. The bush was on fire, but it was not being burned up. So that's all a narrator comment. Now watch verse 3. Moses gets into the mix here. He begins to think in his own heart. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. So verses 1 to Verses 1 and 2 were told by narration. Verse 3 were told by Moses' very words. As we begin to develop our understanding of the story and plot of Exodus, we must develop our theology of Exodus. God will appear again in Exodus. He is making himself known. But when he does appear, he himself appears as fire or a cloud, elements of of nature. That, that is a common feature in Exodus. That wasn't in Genesis, by the way, right? <laughs> we, we just focused on families and generations and passing the seed on. In Exodus, it, it's very different. It's a continuation of the story, but here God begins to manifest himself with his people. We see that in Exodus 3, the burning bush, first time, and we'll see it in Exodus 40 when God continues to manifest himself above the tabernacle that moves within the people as they travel. So just some references you can jot down, and we'll study these in the future. Exodus 3, there's a burning bush. Exodus 13, there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Exodus 19, there's a, a, a pillar of fire and smoke above Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, God is described as a consuming fire. And then in Exodus 40, there's fire and a cloud over the tabernacle. So although this is new in redemptive revelation, this will not be a rare sight for us as we go through Exodus. So make sure we're tracking with those appearances as as we get to them. So that's God's unique appearance to Moses. He he appears to him as fire in a bush. So there's a second section that we see in Exodus 3, and that is God's conversation with Moses. God's conversation with Moses. So as God has made himself known in this burning bush, this conversation will take place as Moses stands there (laughs) and communicates back and forth with God in that bush. So as this conversation unfolds, we are given several key insights about the being and character of God. So as the plot unfolds in this chapter, we come to know more about God. First off, we'll see his holiness. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, 
God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So now that God has Moses' attention, he calls out to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses. So in dramatic and authoritative fashion, God calls out to Moses. Again, imagine being there at that scene, an audible voice from the bush. Now, this is reminiscent of God calling Abraham in Genesis 22. There, God called Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. So in Genesis, Abraham emerged as the man, the guy, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. In Exodus, Moses emerges as the man, the guy, the, the head of the nation. That's why, by the way, in the New Testament, both Abraham and Moses are considered the two most important characters of the Old Testament. Notice Moses' response in verse 4. <laughs> we would all respond this way, by the way. He says, here I am. Same words as Abraham responding to God in Genesis 22. So when God calls people, his people respond this way. And there's other examples in Scripture that you'll find with this response. Now, notice God's next statement to Moses, verse 5. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, it wasn't as if this geographical region or this mountain or this bush had always been holy, or even that it would be in the future once this scene had ended. The idea was because God's presence was there, he was setting apart that particular location as holy that God makes his holiness known and that he cannot be approached flippantly. And you can see that because God commands Moses to do what? To take off your shoes. You haven't ever been at a scene like this. You haven't ever witnessed anything like this. I want you to understand right now in the midst of my call of you that I am a holy God. This is new territory for Moses, no pun intended. He's entered on new grounds. He is in the presence of the almighty God. So, of course, Moses, he obeys. He understands what he is witnessing. He understands who he is interacting with. He takes off his sandals. Notice God's words in verse 6. God said, I am the God of your father, Moses' immediate family, and then he adds, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So here, God identifies himself as the God of Moses' father, and then the God of the main characters or figures in the book of Genesis. It's the same God working in Genesis that is appearing to Moses in Exodus. Exodus. 
Notice, by the way, in verse 6, the repetition of the God. The God. This verse is also suggesting that the same God is currently, during Moses' time, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So not just in a Genesis sense, but that God is currently their God, which is implying that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had passed away or fallen to sleep many years prior, that they are presently alive in his presence in heaven. So the, the, the focus here isn't on Moses. The, the focus here isn't necessarily on the bush that isn't being consumed. The focus is on God and his unmatched holiness. Notice Moses' response at the end of verse 6. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You know, it's common for the, the, the faith healers and the prosperity gospel preachers and all of that stuff, very common for them to say that they have face-to-face, side-by-side conversations with the Almighty God. But notice when an actual conversation happens with God, that God's people can barely even look upon God's face. Here, Moses has to completely hide himself, for he was afraid to even look towards Almighty God. Now, this sort of reminds us of the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, doesn't it? Luke 5, when he comes to understand and know that he is in the presence of Jesus Christ, the God-man, remember he says, depart, depart from me, I'm a what? Sinful man. Uh, he, he, the Apostle Peter didn't even want to be in presence of Christ because he knew who Christ was. Moses here can't even look towards the presence of God. But God didn't appear to Moses to simply show Moses his unmatched holiness, but to also express, secondly, his omniscience. His omniscience. So in this conversation, we see the omniscience of God, and that really unfolds for us in two ways. First, his knowledge of history. His knowledge of history. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Let's stop there. So although Moses has been narrating the horrific treatment of the nation of Israel, and how they have experienced those things firsthand through the power and hatred of Pharaoh, this is the first time that we see God acknowledging through verbal communication that he has understood fully what has been happening to the people. The first time God acknowledges this situation. Again, this is Hebrew narrative at its finest. As readers, we get moved around and told specific things in specific ways, from different vantage points. So here, God tells us that he has most definitely seen how the Egyptians have persecuted his people. He knows, and he has seen what has transpired. 
Now look at verse 8. Okay, well, what, what does all that information mean? Why, why does God express that? Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. So for over 400 years, God has taken note of every single situation and persecution that has happened and transpired in Egypt. And here in chapter 3, God tells us that he has come down to deal with it. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Now everything is becoming more clear. God is calling Moses. He's setting Moses apart out of his people. Now God is telling Moses, I have come down to deal with my people being enslaved. Notice, by the way, this is the same type of language as the book of Genesis when God came down at the Tower of Babel to deal with all of that rebellion. Here, God is coming down not only to free his people, but to judge in the same way that he did in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Well, where will God deliver them to? Well, you can just take your eyes across verse 8. To a spacious land, one flowing with milk and honey, and then he goes on to describe the location of that place. I mean, this is a call back to Genesis 15. You can mark this in your notes. Genesis 15 describes the fact that God's people would be enslaved and then they would be freed from that enslavement and they would be taken into a specific piece of land. God is telling Moses, I'm about to do that. In other words, God is saying, what I promised to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, I'm about to do, and you are going to be the man that I have chosen to be the human instrument to actually get it done. So we understand and get insight on God's knowledge of history. We also come to understand God's knowledge of prayer. Verse 9, of course, God has decreed from the beginning that this is how it would be. But in addition to that, God has heard the cries of his people. Verse 9, behold, the cries of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, brothers and sisters, we're told here simply that God responds to the prayers of his people, to their cries. At the end of Exodus 2, they cried out, and God heard them. Here in Exodus 3, God personally Again, he tells us that he hears his people's prayers and he's coming down to answer them. I mean, the application could go on and on from that verse alone. God hears the prayers of his people and he responds. That's the same for you and I today. That's the same for us today. When we pray, God responds. He hears and responds. And secondly, by way of application... God is with his people at all times, no matter the circumstance. <laughs> he may have been silent for over 400 years while his people were enslaved. Oh, but he was watching every single detail. And then here in Exodus 3, we are told that he heard and he's responding. Well, the conversation continues. We are told also of God's calling. God's calling. Verse 10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? 
And God said, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So you can most certainly believe Moses did not see this coming when he woke up that morning. I mean, not only did he not expect a burning bush and God appearing to him, speaking to him, but God now telling him, oh yeah, remember Egypt when you were there 40 years ago, all the people were enslaved? Yeah, I'm sending you. I'm going to send you back there and I'm going to use you to deliver all 2 million people from Pharaoh. Notice verse 11, Moses' response, of course, (laughs) who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, Moses is basically saying, well, I'm a nobody, God. And that is true. God uses nobodies to accomplish his plans. That's 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. God uses the base of the world to accomplish his plans so that man will not be magnified, but so that God would be glorified. Notice verse 12, God says that he will be with Moses and then gives him a sign to prove to Moses that this redemption will be by God's doing. What is the sign? Look at the end of verse 12. The sign will be that all of the people will be brought out of Egypt and they will worship God at this mountain, at Sinai. What's the sign to confirm God's choice of Moses and that he would truly lead the people out of Egypt? What's the sign? That they would be let out of Egypt and brought to the same mountain at Mount Sinai to worship God. That's the sign. Moses has been called by God to do an impossible task. That is apart from God. We also in this chapter see God's identity. God's identity. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, Well, what is his name? Well, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So on some level, Moses seems to be convinced by God that he would be the guy for the job. And his first duty is to go to the nation of Israel and tell them that he has been commissioned by God, that he is the one to get them out of slavery. And he also knows, Moses that is, that when he makes such a claim that all of them will want to know, well, who is it that sent you? What is is his name? Well, the Israelites had been embedded in Egyptian culture for over 400 years. So they understood the idea of a plurality of gods, pagan gods. But they also knew that these pagan gods had names. So when Moses returns, they want to know the name of the God that is making this claim. What is his name? 
It's interesting here. Before God actually gives his name, God first gives his character. God first reveals his own character, verse 14. So what is the name? What am I supposed to tell them? Who is sending me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Let them know that I am has sent you. So before God reveals his actual name, he describes his own character. Uh, This is a verbal expression here in verse 14 that conveys the idea of I will be who I am or I am who I will be. You could even say it this way. Listen to this. God can be counted on to be who God is. God is revealing that he is the eternal God, the creator God, the one who sustains all things, including human history. In addition to that, he is the God who makes covenants with his people and he keeps them. How or why? Because he is an eternal God that is immutable and cannot change. And no other God can make such a claim. That's why it was necessary for Moses to go tell all of the people the name of this one true God. God has appeared in a burning bush unlike any other God. In fact, those gods don't even exist. God says, I do. God says, I exist. That's, that's basically what he's He's saying. The nation of Israel needed to be convinced that Moses was bringing a true word from the living God. So after God reveals his character, he finally reveals his name. Verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Uh, So you can see in verse 15, God gives us the official, his official name. Back in verse 14, it was a verbal expression. Here, it's a noun, and you see it in all capital letters in your Bible. Lord. Uh, This is the Hebrew word that means I am. Or if we are to say it, uh, referring to God, he is. It's, It's pronounced Yahweh. It's pronounced Yahweh, and it's based on the four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. That's probably nothing new to you, but this is a common name for God in the Old Testament. Almost 7,000 times God is referred to this way. But again, I want you to notice the context of God's character and name. The fact of the matter is, is that God's character and name are revealed here in connection with God fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant that was stated in Genesis 12. The same God 
with the same character is going to use Moses to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and give them the promised land. Again, that is the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, will God's name end once that has come to fruition? No. The end of verse 15, this is my name forever. So after God reveals his name, God continues by revealing his sovereignty. His sovereignty. So God says to Moses, verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. So now, once Moses returns, he's supposed to go to the elders of Israel and gather them together and let them know of God's plan to use him to deliver them out of slavery. And notice the details with which God is operating here. God is commanding Moses to go do this, commanding Moses to go do that. He is in complete sovereign control of this entire scene. You can imagine the amount of people involved when you look at it holistically. Of course, this is just a one-on-one conversation with Moses, but as soon as Moses returns to Egypt, who's he dealing with? (laughs) Well, 200 people that are enslaved, but also Pharaoh and all of his men. Only a sovereign God could pull off a situation like this. Verse 18, they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under my compulsion. So God says that Moses will have a hearing before Pharaoh. He, along with the elders, will be able to speak to him directly. So Moses is to request of Pharaoh to let the people go first off for three days to sacrifice to God. Uh, This is sort of a little trial run, right? Before we get to the 10 plagues, Moses is to go back with the elders of Israel and to ask Pharaoh, hey, let us go out into the wilderness for three days. Let us take a break from this slavery. Let us go out there and worship God for three days Of course, verse 19, does Pharaoh or will he even allow that? Well, no. God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under my compulsion. Now we're introduced to God's omnipotence. By the way, God's telling everything that's about to happen. (laughs) Exodus chapter 3, again, is a microcosm of the rest of the book. Pharaoh won't let the people go. So God's going to have to step in and show his omnipotence. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. 
we'll see this, so I don't want to develop it here. But this idea of God stretching out his hand or Moses stretching out his hand or Moses stretching out his staff, all of that is to identify the power of God sovereignly working behind the scenes to free his people. Well, last truth that we find about God in this chapter is his providence. His providence. Verse 21. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. So God, I mean, he, God's calling the shots. <laughs> He's saying, look, here, here's what's going to happen. Here's the outcome. Now watch verse 22. But every woman from the nation of Israel, that is, shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, at first glance, these verses, they seem kind of, I mean, it's been pretty ramped up this whole chapter, right? There's a lot going on. These verses seem a little more subtle and a little more low-key. But they really are the culmination of what God has promised will happen. He will come in and over ten plagues obliterate the Egyptians. Absolutely obliterate them. And it will come to the point, and this is what's so interesting about verse 22. Stick with me here. That because of God's power and obliteration of the Egyptians that Hebrew women will be able to go into every household and ask for silver, gold, and clothing. You know, normally when empires are destroyed, people come in and just plunder everything and take it and steal it and make it theirs. Here, God says, look, I'm just going to send all of the ladies to every house. You just ask them for gold. You ask them for silver. You ask them for clothing. And because they know exactly who I am, they will give it to you. Again, that's fulfillment of Genesis 15. And by the way, what they took, and we'll get there in Exodus, but what they took was ultimately used to construct the tabernacle. It's an amazing chapter, is it not? A couple application points for you. God is always aware and active. He is always aware and active, and he is involved in our lives. That's just as true today. And then lastly, thinking about God's personal name, that gives a little more context when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, he is the I am. <laughs> Not only is he claiming to be God, but he's telling us that he is here to redeem a people as is previewed by the book of Exodus. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for Exodus 3, the fact that it shows us a preview of what you intend to do throughout the rest of the book with the nation of Israel, that you want to redeem them, and you will. And even a larger picture is the fact that you sent your son, the great I am, to redeem people from their sin. We're grateful for the gospel and that reality that we have been redeemed by Christ. We have been forgiven of our sins. And it's to you we give all the glory in Jesus' name.
Amen.